Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, risk and return, I want to do uh, one last pass at uh, some bond problems. I didn't test you on it for the midterm exam, but I will on the next quiz and, of course, on the final. And a few last cleanup con uh, concepts on bonds, and then we'll get on to risk and return. But before we do that, I'll look at the market just to see what happened. And it was kind of an odd day. It, the uh, Dow, which is usually the quiet one, was up the most. The S&P 500 was up somewhat less. And then the NASDAQ barely broke, has been, been able, barely been able to keep in positive territory. So whatever bullish news is propelling the market is definitely tilted toward positive sentiment for the large cap companies, not the small caps. And uh, we've had a couple of rough days, but the um, doomsayers that said the bank failure, uh, SVB bank failure, was going to be the end of everything, and boy, is everything going to be a mess. Now, that was just the usual uh, kind of uh, breathless sensationalism. It did fail, the, the bank failed, and uh, the Federal Reserve has been trying to point to all of these different reasons, and there are indictments uh, being announced for the, for the principles of the bank, and the Fed seems to avoid the one major cause, and it was the Fed itself. The Fed has been on a uh, an obsessive terror to kill off the high inflation, the high expected inflation, and those high interest rates mean that you are not going to get as many people going to banks to get loans for houses for cars. And that created a stress on banks, and some banks are just going to buckle under that stress. Yeah? I saw throughout that there was four closings. Was there more over? There were a couple of closings, and then there were a couple that were not so much closed. They were just put into another bank very quietly kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, that's, uh, there is always a concern about what's called a contagion effect. Now, that, that means that one bank failing can cause a bunch of banks to fail. As people freak out about one bank, they start running to the, their bank. And of course, that bank doesn't have the deposits, no bank does, to cover it all. And then they fail, and then it goes on and on. That, we have a lot of ways to keep that from happening. However, we have seen contagions that go even international in their scope. And as a matter of fact, in my international finance class, I go through some of the spectacular ones of the last 40 years, 30 years. Uh, I mean, there was one in Asia where just uh, a bank in Asia, uh, in Thailand, buckled, and it had a contagion effect clear outside of Thailand to Japan, South Korea, even Hong Kong was rattled. So it can happen. And then there were other ones, uh, contagion effects that have caused a uh, 
a lot of banks to fail in the country. And then if there is a lot of direct foreign investment in that country, then from other countries, those banks start to ra shake under the pressure. And so, yeah, it can happen. But with one podunk bank or just a couple, there wasn't any risk that it was going to cause a catastrophe. And the markets, as you can see, they're not crying uh, over spilled milk. They, they just dealt with it, and now they're moving on. However, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see that I was recommending on your resume that under your skill sets, you might want to mention that you haven't ever cratered a bank. So it's just something to brag about, I guess, these days. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, now I, the markets are up. It's a bullish day, and it, it wasn't anything spectacular, but it was a, it was a decent day. Now, crude oil has just gone down so much in price, and yet gasoline prices are not going down. And when you get a situation like that, you've got to figure that something else is going on. When gas prices were extraordinarily high, the oil companies were making uh, historic profits. But now that the oil prices have gone down, those oil companies are be damned if they're going to give up those massive profits that they were making last year. And there is very good reason to believe that there is a lot, there is price fixing going on. Is that horrible? Well, it pisses people off and it certainly tends to push away the idea that markets are efficient and perfect. Not always, not when you have oligopolies playing in the game. And what can we do about it? Nothing. So we just have to wait and hope that the gas prices will eventually come down to the level of the crude oil price, that the crude oil prices have come down. They have lost about half of their value price. Crude oil has gone down about half of its, half of its price per barrel over the last year. So gasoline should come down when? I don't know. Now, gold and silver didn't do anything. They, were, they bounced around a little bit. There was a little excitement among the gold bugs, but it's nothing big. And the 10-year bond, 10-year bond, price went up, and therefore yields are going down. Here's the thinking. The Federal Reserve is not going to admit that it was pushing interest rates up too much too fast. They're not, they're, they're not stupid. They're not going to blame themselves. However, in the back channels, the data we're seeing, the Fed has virtually given up on uh, tight money supply for the time being. They know damn well what they did caused was a contributing factor to the SVB failure. And if you look at some of these ways that the Fed can push money into an economy that are really complicated, they're doing it. There is no question about it. I had some traders from uh, New York and Chicago asking me if they were seeing what they thought they were seeing. Yeah, the Fed has suddenly decided that the fight against inflation might take a breather for a while. It's good news for the economy. Now, I'm going to show you something here. This is the first time I've shown this to you. And I'll talk about this from now on every day just to bring it up so that you are comfortable. You are going to work in a global environment. This whole thing, well, the economy is global now. Well, it has been for a very, very, very long time. 
but you're going to see more of it in your lives, and especially over the next 20 to 30 years as there's a lot of battle for supremacy on the global stage. The U.S. is still number one. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. But there are contenders to the throne. There is the um, euro, of course, and then there are people who talk about how the rupee is going to replace the dollar, which is kind of ridiculous, but there are a lot of players out there. So it helps you if you understand exchange rates and how to look at how to read them and to know what the implications are of them. I'm not going to beat you up with it a lot in this class, but I want you to know more than the average person knows about the global stage. See this right here, this EUR slash USD. That's called a currency pair. That is the exchange rate of euros for dollars. <clears throat> the one that's listed first is one of that currency. And the one that is listed second is how many of the other currency it takes to buy that. So a EUR slash USD, one euro costs how many US dollars? That's that currency pair. So if you look at that, it is appreciating. So it is taking more US dollars to buy a single euro. It's been pushing its way up over some time now. Why is it doing that? There are a couple of reasons why one currency appreciates against another. Remember that interest rates are the value of a currency. So one thing that could be happening is that US uh, European Euro interest rates are going up faster than US interest rates. That relative rate of increase will drive the uh, exchange rate. In this case, we are backing off the fight against inflation. Interest rates are going to slide downward, and therefore the US dollar is going to depreciate and the euro will appreciate. That's why the euro is getting more valuable. It's costing more dollars to buy a euro right now. I do this in god-awful detail in an international finance class, and sometimes I even get confused about which way, what's going on. But this is, there are other reasons too. The euro could appreciate against the dollar, the US dollar, if European national income is going up against relatively faster than US income. That could cause that to happen too. Another thing is inflation. If European inflation is less than American inflation, then the European currency will appreciate against the dollar. So all of those factors could be involved in causing the euro to rise against the dollar. Right now, it costs, to buy one euro, it costs $1.07 about. If it wants to, it's trying to push up more than that. There are some things you can look at called SMAs that help you with the looking at where it might go. But there is definitely a trend, trend upward in the US dollar against the, uh, if I were to look, let's look at uh, a year. Do you see how the euro slid against the dollar when US interest rates were going up? Making it more, the dollar more valuable, the euro less valuable. Took fewer dollars to buy a euro. Now, then it surged upward as Europeans, their interest rates started going up. That caused a recovery. And it's been kind of bouncing around now. If I were to look, 
I don't know. It could it could top a dollar ten for a euro. But right now it's kind of it's recovering from a little dip and it's coming back the euro is appreciating against the dollar right now. Now let me go back here. Find another one. The GBP, Great Britain Pound. Notice how it is appreciating against the dollar. Right now, to get one Great Britain Pound you would spend $1.22.75. Okay, that's what that's telling you. One GBP would cost $1.22.74. Okay, and notice that that has been rising as, Europe, as British interest rates are going up against American interest rates. The pound will appreciate against the dollar. You follow it? Okay, now here's where Yahoo pulls a fast one on us. Notice these currency pairs are always putting how many dollars? But the next one, the yen, it's saying how many yen buys a dollar. Notice how they flip the per currency pair. So in other words, in this one, as this declines, the, the yen rises. It drives me crazy. How many, uh, one US dollar costs how many yen? And it's been a euro, a dollar has bought fewer and fewer yen. The yen is appreciating. See how the dollar is buying fewer and fewer yen? These currency pairs, I wish they would put them all in the same order, but they don't sometimes. But it drives you crazy when they do that. But anyway, I noticed something interesting here. Bitcoin against the dollar is is fl uh, no, it's 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 right. It's it's right. It's okay. I don't know why they do the yen backwards, but dropping it when the U.S. dollar is the base, one U.S. dollar, means that the other currency is appreciating. In other words, if I did this JPY slash USD, this chart would be flipped around and it would look like these right here. I don't know why they do that. It's just killing me. But if this, yes, you can actually trade these pairs and it is risky to play them. You get these people who say, well, I can make you a Forex trader or uh, one of those scammers, watch it. These things are really pretty damn volatile. I showed you, look at the Euro. You play in the Euro uh, USD market over a period of a year. That thing has been really moving around a lot. There's a term, when a euro and a dollar are exactly one to one, we call that parity. Notice that the euro at one point last uh, year was below parity when U.S. interest rates were going up real fast and the Europeans hadn't started raising their interest rates. But then the Europeans said, well, we're having inflation too, so let's grab a hold. So now that's why the euro began to appreciate. It's something for you. It's good mental kind of thing to think about, work on. And if you are a crazy person, you will even you know, do some trading in these, which unfortunately, I'm stupid enough, I just took an option betting that the euro would make it to a dollar ten against the dollar by uh, within a month, and I know I'm going to pay for that 
it doesn't look like it's going to make it that high. Looks like it found a cap right here today, right around 107. But anyway, that's something for you to have a look at. Uh, just something to think about. Uh, and I'll do this again. I'll bring it up because the important part of this is that if you work in any kind of a company that has multinational operations, oh God, this becomes so important to you. Like, for example, if you are, have a subsidiary in Europe and they're making money in euros, you want that money to come back here to the parent company eventually. But if that euro is swinging around against dollars, you have to know what to do to keep that from affecting the amount that you're making in dollars. And that's called hedging. And that's what I'm, matter of fact, that's what I'm doing this week in my uh, one class, in my international finance class. But anyway, enough of that. Let me take you on one last journey, a tour, as it were, of bond prices. And I think I've got some uh, bond <coughs> pricing and yield exercises in ReggieNet. If they're not showing, I'll check, and if they're not, I'll make them show so that you can have a few more practice problems to do. But let's just take a traditional cup, uh, problem. Find a price if you know the yield. Find a yield if you know the price. Uh, CJB, 5.6%, Now, the ticker symbol isn't really that. Bond ticker symbols are just these long, stupid strings. But uh, anyway... Now you can see from this that this pays a coupon of 5.6%. In other words, every year you'll get 5.6% of the face value of 1,000. So you'll get a check every year for $56. Now more realistically, you will get twice a year a check for $26. But we'll just do annual coupons for the first pass. Okay, so CJB, 5.6%, 2035. In other words, the term of this is 13 years. No, make that 2036. Okay, now, one. If the yield is 5.4%, 5.45%, let's say. What is the price? The second way I could ask it is to, if the price is $970.40, what is the yield? To maturity. Now I could also ask for a yield to call and you replace that 13 years with however long it is until the call can happen. Now the first one. Walk with me. I'm going to do this. These are actually easier in, a, in the calculator than they are in Excel, so I'll use the calculator for these. We're going to say apps, finance, TVM solver.
Now the n is 36 minus 23, so the n is 13 years. Drop it down. I percent. The I percent is the yield. In the problem one, I've given you the yield. The yield is 5.45%. Now remember in Excel, you actually have to specifically say percent so it knows it's a decimal. You don't do that here. Now the price value, that's what we want to know. What are the payments? The payments are 0 0.056, that's the coupon. So you might want to put a note, PMT is coupon times face which is always a thousand, the face value is. So in other words, $56 a year. Now the face value is always a thousand, always. Now make sure that that bottom toggle is on end, for heaven's sakes. Now go back up to the price value, the PV, and you just say alpha solve. So the price of this bond is $1,013.72. Now let me show you how you would deal with it if it is a semi-annual coupon. Now on a test, the difference is usually pretty small, and I give a wide enough range that you can do it either way, annual or semi-annual. But you have some homework problems with semi-annual. To make it semi-annual, you take the number of years times two, because you'll get two payments every year. So there will be 36 coupon payments. Now the I percent, it's going to be calculated every twice a year, so you divide that 5.45 by 2. The N, you multiply the I percent, if you know it, you divide. Now the price value is going to stay the same, but the payments are now going to be divided into two semi-annuals. So you'll get, instead of one $56 payment a year, you'll get two $28 payments a year. Now everything else stays the same. If you're doing semi-annual, you just change the N and the I percent and the payment. Now notice how little the price value changes. It was with annual coupons, $1,013.72. With semi-annual payments, it's $1,013.84. So very little, very little. Now it does get a little bit nastier if the coupon and the yield are very different. It does get a little, it does get a little bit more noticeable. <clears throat> but that's that one. Yeah? What does CJB stand for? That's just the ticker symbol of the company that issued the bond. Like I said, I mean a real bond the real ticker symbols are these long strings. They have the, the listing ticker of the company, the year of maturity, the coupon. It's all part of the ticker symbol, and that drives me crazy. 
Now, let's go back and do number two, where we need the yield. By the way, notice something here. Do you notice that the yield was below the coupon? The coupon is more than what the market requires. The yield is what the market wants, but the coupon is better than that. So notice that this bond sells at a premium to par of 1,000. The yield is above the coupon, so the bond sells at a premium to par. I'm sorry, the yield was below the coupon. The coupon's too rich. Investors love that. They're getting more than they want. And so this bond will sell at a premium to par. It'll sell at about 1,013, 1,014. Now let's go back and do the other one. I'll do it annually first. What was that, 13 years? Now in this case, we don't know the I percent. The I percent is the yield. We don't know it. So what I, uh, I want to leave that alone. Don't try to alter it. You can go, just go back up and alpha solve it. Now the price, in this case, we know the price. And don't forget to put in a negative on the price value, 970. 0.40, 0 0.40. Now the payments are the 0 0.056 times the face of a thousand. They're always going to be the coupon times a thousand. If it's semi-annual, you divide the result by two. Everything else is going to stay the same. And now we're going to go up and we're going to get the yield. Before I do that, notice that in the second example, the bond is selling at a discount to par below 1,000. That means the investors are not happy with the coupon. They think it should be higher than 5.6%. Let's see what happens. Put it on the I percent and say alpha solve. Sure enough, 5.93%. That's why it's selling at a discount to par. The market says, you're giving 5.6%, uh, that's not enough. We wanted 5.93%. So in other words, the price kind of reveals what the market is thinking about whether the coupon is good or not. Now let me take you back up here, and we'll do it semi-annually. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. On a test, I'm not going to require you do semi-annuals, but they do have some homework problems in the book, uh, in your online homework, that do to have you do it. So in this case, N is 13 years times two payments a year, so it'll be 26 payments. This time we don't know the yield. Again, so we're going to leave it alone. But we have to remember that if I'm giving everything semi-annually, then the yield is going to come out as semi-annual, so I have to times it by two. But we'll remember that. Now, we leave that price value alone, but the payments, they're semi-annual, so I have to divide them by two. So I'm getting $28 every six months. Now I go back up here to the I percent to alpha solve it. Now again, I gave it semi-annual information, so it's going to come out with a semi-annual coupon. 2.96. Just go over to the end and times it by 2 to get its 
annual equivalent, 5.93%. Again, notice that semi-annual and annual, they really are not that much different. But it's something to keep an eye on. And, I, and I, as I said, I've got some problems that you can practice on. Just keep plowing it, and you shouldn't have much problem on the uh, a quiz or an exam with it. I'm going to show you something. One last, one last thing about bonds. Um, uh, I'm going to dispense with the reinvestment versus price risk. But I do want to talk about, mention one more thing to you. Let me show you that bond again. When you buy a bond, you're going to buy it in the secondary market. Someone already owns it, wants to dump it, you're going to buy it. So let's say you're on a timeline right here. And these are the semi-annual coupons. Each one comes six months after the last one. There was a... No. Zero month and then six months. At a coupon payment date, $28 is distributed by the borrower. Now, <coughs> let's say that you buy the bond right here, 120 days after the last coupon was paid. You buy it there. And let's say you paid $970.40 for it. That's what its price is, it's quoting. Well, what did it, was it, $970.40? Okay, $970.40. The problem is, that's not what you're going to pay. That's what's called the clean price. You see, whoever was holding that bond was 120 days into getting another coupon payment when he sold it. So you're going to have to pay him not just the $970. You're going to also have to pay the accrued interest from, the last, from here to here. Because he's not going to ever get that $28. He, gave the, he sold the bond. So he doesn't get the $28. But you'll have to pay it. The way you do it is you're going to take the coupon times the number of days divided by 180. That'd be 360 if the coupons were paid annually. In other words, have, were you taught in any of your classes like accounting about what's called pro rata? Yeah, a pro rata, this is the same thing. So what's going to happen here is that you will pay $970.40 
plus, what is that, $28 times 120. 120 divided by 180. So you're going to pay $18.67 because you have to pay him what he had earned as the owner over those 120 days since the last coupon. So you will have to pay him uh, Whoops, that didn't work. The $970.40, that's called the clean price. That's what they will, your broker will tell you. That's what you will see quoted. And then when you order the bond, they will take this, 989.07. This is called the dirty price. That's what you will pay as dirty. You'll see clean, you'll pay dirty. And I kind of, I, I, the um, traders who've been my former students, they talk about this. They say someone called, yelled at me because they, they, what they had taken out of their account was more, you know, maybe $20 more than what the quote was. And they say, what was this? Some kind of commission you didn't tell us about? No. You paid the dirty. And they say, well, why, why, why isn't that quoted? We don't quote the dirty. Because, uh, well, think about it this way. I mean, the dirty is going to naturally go up the farther towards the next coupon you go. So that dirty at 150 days is going to be higher than the dirty, even if the bond was the same price, clean, it will the, the what uh, the accrued interest will be going up for every on every day past a coupon date, so it would give a distorted view of the underlying value of the bond if that dirty was constantly being accumulated on there day over day. It would have a natural rise in the stock in the bond price. So that's why it's not quoted that way. But I could ask you a dirty on a, it's a pretty simple coupon times the number of days since the last coupon divided by the number of days between coupons. Nothing complicated about it too much. But just remember, if you do get into buying bonds, that it, it's, a, it's enough to get, catch your attention when you, uh, especially if the coupon, is, it's a big coupon. The, you know, if it's a high interest, high coupon rate bond, that dirty can be a, a little bit different from what you expect the, to pay. Anyway, I've talked to you enough about bonds, so I'll go on to something a little bit different now. I've talked about risk before. This is a chapter on risk and return. And I've talked about risk in this class before. 
It is at the heart of finance. Many, many years ago, I taught economics, and what was what was bothering me then was that in the early, in that time, micro and macro economics really didn't even touch the subject of risk as a driving force in economic decision making. But it is a driving force in economic decision making. It's compelling, and it's what drives our financial system and our financial world and even our behavioral world is this concept of risk and um, fortunately I think more more these days than back in my early time in the 1980s the uh, the economics is beginning to discuss risk more but they still don't make it as integral as it really is so there's that but as I had told you before Risk, one way you could talk about risk is that the possible variation in outcomes. Risk is the possible variation A possible difference in outcomes. Now there are two parts to this. One is how many different possible outcomes and how different those possible outcomes are. You, sir, you have been bothering me all day. So what I'm going to do is old school. Slap you up the left side of your head. Chop. Okay? But I could also decide that you need it on the right side of your head. Chip Two different outcomes, but they really don't matter. You just got chopped across the head for being bad, and you were. Okay? However, let's do a coin flip. Head, you get $1,000. Tail, you lose $1,000. Same number of possible outcomes, but there is a considerable difference in what's going to happen in those two outcomes. One of my best pieces of advice, people say, well, what's the stock market going to do? I say it's going to go up or down. That's why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> you see, the, the how different uh, is a huge part of it. And also, how many, if it's a very small cluster, in other words, if the distribution of possible outcomes is normal, but it's very tight around just a few outcomes. Well, that's a very different kind of structure than if there is a high probability of widely separated outcomes. And so we have to look at the different measures. And I'll talk about that a little bit more on Wednesday. But we do have to appreciate that in this whole thing. But 
there's no question about it that risk and return are hugely related. So here is the first pass at the de definition. The greater the risk, the greater the return. But there's something wrong with this definition. Matter of fact, there are two things wrong with it. But one thing is definitely wrong. Uh, did you know, sir, that you could die tomorrow? I mean, it could happen. Okay? But we don't know that. That's just it. You decided, sir, that you're going to major in finance. Now, you go out there, I'm going to get a big return on my investment in college. It turns out that 10 years later, I find you working as the assistant manager at a Jiffy Lube on the south side of Memphis. Your life is going nowhere, but on the weekends, you do Elvis impersonations for children's parties, and you do have a uh, double-wide trailer, and uh, your kids are double-wide too. So it all worked out in the end, so don't be sad. Okay. Did I tell you about, I used to write country and western songs. One of them was pretty popular. The kids are ugly because of you. <laughs> you don't believe me? I had another one. My, uh, I put my heart on eBay, but you didn't bid. Mm -hmm. All-time hit, truck stop, parking lot, angel. Okay. Greater the risk, the greater the return. So in other words, it's not the return, it's the expected return. So a better definition is the greater the risk, the greater the expected return. You've been working at my donut shop, selling the donuts at the front register, and I've been paying you $15, you $10 an hour, okay? And you know, I, I decide that I'm going to you know, shift your duties. Uh, I'm gonna have you work in the back room with these boiling hot vats of the oil that the donut dough is put into, okay? And uh, you got to be careful because, I mean, if, this, if you end up in there, you're going to be chicken fried in five minutes. And we'll come and get you as fast as we can, but I'm not going to burn my hands on you. Uh, we'll get a pole and have you grab it. Uh, do you understand? Okay, I'm still going to pay you $10 a, uh, an hour. Okay. Is that reasonable? No. No. Because you're taking more risk doing this. So you are going to expect more out of it for the same reason that you expect to make more coming out of this university than you would coming out of uh, high school. You're taking a greater risk, so you expect a greater return. You're not here because you just love yourself the intellectual lifestyle. You're here because you want to make more money. Don't lie to me. You aren't here for my lectures. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay. Now, there we go. So in other words, risk, this is where risk begins to play in. But you, madam, I've got you back there in that boiling oil room working on it. And I give you all these gloves, these heavy-duty gloves, and this apron that keeps the hot stuff. And you say, well, no, I'm not going to wear those. Pay me more. And I say, kiss my ass. You're going to wear those. I go, you don't have to wear the gloves, but you're still going to get paid the same. Well, I just don't want to. Do you understand that I'm not going to pay you more for a risk that you did not have to take? You didn't have to take it. That's where the other part of this comes in. And the last definition. The greater the systematic risk, the risk that is in the system itself, that cannot be eliminated, the greater the systematic risk, the greater the expected return. Hear a growling? No. What is it? Is there something in the walls that's going to come out? Of the, I will eat your thigh. Anyway, it's, it's, okay. The greater the systematic risk, the greater the expected return. There is risk that is inherent to the system itself. And there are, then there are risks that are not inherent to the system. You don't have to bear those risks. There are ways. We call that systematic part. Different, have, we have different names for it. Avoidable risk is one. Or uh, in stocks, we call it diversifiable risk. Let me show you something here. Uh, I'm going to try to see who I should do for this for. I'm going to tell you about your life, specifically your health your care costs from the time you're born. On the horizontal axis is time. On the vertical axis is your health care costs. Now you were born, you were kind of a sickly child, but I kept you anyway. You know, I could have had you adopted, but I decided to keep you. Health care costs were pretty high in the early infancy. And there were some more costs later, but then you kind of got healthy in your toddler years, and then you got a few problems, broke some bones as a kid, then you found out about weed, meth. You got over that, and you, your healthcare costs in your 20s were pretty good. You got the herd immunities, uh, you didn't get sick as much. But then you get into your 30s, and first there was the diabetes, and then you had to buy the little blue, blue pills. And then there was the cholesterol. Then you had 
the first heart attack and you got your act together, you felt better, but they kept getting worse and worse. And then you had a good period to about 65, and then you had a heart attack and you died. That's your life. I'm good at this, by the way. <laughs> now, madam, you. You were born very healthy. You were a pride and a joy. You had a, you had a pretty cheap childhood. You had a couple of scrapes. You were kind of a tomboy. And then you lived through some good years. But then, around the age of eight or nine, you started doing TikTok videos. And then you found out about boys. But then you got healthy, you felt good. And then there was the obesity. You got through that. Then you had some issues, implants, and then you started getting some problems with your gallbladder. And you got through those and you started getting sicker and then there was the nursing home and the incident with, never mind. But anyway, you die. Something interesting is going on here. The healthcare costs are not perfectly correlated. There is a canceling effect going on. Imagine over thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, you put their health care costs all together and they will be canceling each other out, highs and lows, as long as they're not perfectly correlated. And what's going to happen is an underlying systematic risk is going to show itself. Predicting health care costs for a large pool of insureds is very straightforward. It actually is not hard because as long as you keep that, that, uh, that risk pool well diversified so that you don't have a lot of all the people have the same profile, you're going to have a canceling effect and an underlying systematic cost will appear about the same every year, so that we can predict the premiums that we would charge for those who are in the pool. You might be very sick sometimes, but at the same time, you might be pretty good those times. And so overall, it works itself out so that there is a known, or at least very easily predictable cost to the overall population. This is why it was, and this is not just in healthcare, it's in all kinds of areas. This idea that insurers used to have that they would cherry pick or they would discriminate. Well, we want to avoid those kind of people because they have this kind of illness and we don't want to. You dumbasses, you notice that they don't have some of the other illnesses that your favorite people have. This is also true in employment. You want one single kind of person in your workforce, 
You want to avoid minorities. You want to avoid women. You want to avoid anything you, uh, that you think is a risk. Well, you're not looking at the entire picture. What is a risk in one area is probably a lower risk in another area. And so that's why we're trying to enlighten without going into any kind of soft, touchy-feely stuff. It's just good business to diversify your pool, whether it is an insurance pool, an employee pool, or whatever. The more diversity you have, the more of that non-systematic, diversifiable risk will go away. You choose, you pick and choose a few stocks. You're asking for it because individual stocks have terrible, non-systematic, diversifiable risk. All you'd have to do is put more stocks in there and those wild spikes and troughs would go away and the underlying risk of the security would start to show itself. Microsoft is a great example. If I remember the data correctly, if you buy Microsoft stock, 60% of the variability of returns is, you can get rid of it. You can just make that go away. Without changing the expected return, you can just get rid of 60% of the whipsaw in the stock by simply putting it in a portfolio with a bunch of other stocks that will go up when Microsoft goes down, go down when Microsoft goes up, so that the underlying risk reward will start to show through. Let me show you. Um, I always struggle with this. Let me go Google. I should, they keep, eliminating some of my bookmarks. <coughs> uh, stock correlations. Portfolio visualizer. Now I'll put a link, uh, if I don't already have one, I'll put one on my podcasting site. The portfolio visualizer, there it is. Let me explain to you what I'm going to do here. You type in stock symbols, and it will show you the Pearson correlation coefficients. Now what you're looking for is low, well below one. Because if it's one, they're not doing anything. They're just riding together, magnifying each other's risk. But if you, let me go. I'm gonna do Ford, Meta, whoops. Ford, Meta, I don't know, Target, uh, Pfizer, Tesla, Walmart, um, Home Depot, what else? Oh, Lockheed Martin. LMT. Now what this will do, it will show you a correlation matrix. And this is kind of a, a wonderful tool for seeing what stocks play together nicely in a portfolio. Now my rule is look for correlation coefficients below 0.3. Some people say 0.2, some people say 0.4. I don't know. Okay, here we go. 
Now let's look at Ford. Ford against Meta, 0.24 correlation, they would be good together in a portfolio. They cancel out a lot of each other's diversifiable risk. Go over here, Target. Now that one kind of surprises me. It's above what I would consider my threshold. Why are those so correlated? I mean, but there you go. Pfizer, obviously that one's going to be low correlation with a car manufacturer. Those would be good. Tesla, it's okay. It's a little bit close to the boundary there if you want Ford in your portfolio. Walmart and Ford, no, they're very good together. They play nice. Now, Ford and Home Depot, well, I, I, I'm not sure. What is it? Guys who buy Ford trucks go to Home Depot? I, I can't, I can't, I've never been able to figure that one out, but you can see those Ford and Home Depot wouldn't be very good in a portfolio together. They're not canceling each other's diversifiable risk too much. But Lockheed Martin, defense company, has very little to do with Ford. So there's that. Now Meta. Meta against Target. Yeah, that that's, makes sense. 0.18, very low correlation coefficient. Against Pfizer, absolutely. Now, Meta against Tesla. That one, that's higher than I would expect, but yeah, I probably, would, I probably wouldn't in that. But Meta against Walmart, oh yeah, those are great together. You see how that low that correlation coefficient is? Now, Meta against Home Depot, that's just weird, okay? And then against Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin, now look at this. Do you notice, let's look at Home Depot. Do you notice how Home Depot doesn't play very nicely with anything? It's almost like uh, that's one that you might want to kind of not do that one if uh, it's just got too much correlation with everything. Now, Lockheed Martin, why the heck would it be have a 0.32 against Pfizer? What is it? They vaccinate all of their weapons before they fire them? I don't know. And then against Home Depot, that's, yeah, that's Walmart. Look at this. It has only one bad boy, Target, which makes sense. You either buy Target or you buy Walmart. Uh, you wouldn't want both of them because they fuel each other. I guess if you fall on bad times, you stop going to Target and you go to Wall. I don't know. Or maybe I stop at both of them. I mean, I go to Target just so I can look cool, and then I go over to Walmart so I can actually get stuff at a price I can afford. Okay, Tesla. It's kind of around the board. It's Some of them, against Target, it's good. Pfizer, it's good. Walmart, it's good. Well, look at that. Tesla is a zero against Lockheed Martin. Oh, I, I guess say Lockheed Martin doesn't make electric flying jets. But, okay, Pfizer. Pfizer is actually a pussycat against everything, but Home, oh, well, Home Depot is not nice to anything. So Pfizer looks like a good play for any portfolio, uh, except one that had Home Depot in it. And Target, uh, I'm a little worried. Target against... Target against Ford, Target against Walmart, and Target against Home Depot. It's got a little bit of a, 
you know, you'd have to be a little careful what else you had in the portfolio with Target. If you had to choose one consumer uh, retail company, it looks to me like Walmart would probably be a better bet. Just uh, if you're just grabbing some stocks to put into a portfolio. But this is kind of practical advice. Even if you aren't going to make a big portfolio, you can still look at this to know what would be a better and a worse deal. Remember that this does not remove any of the expected return in, by putting them together other than what they would do with their systematic risk. All it does is keep the portfolio from having so many exciting outcomes that are outliers. That's what this does for you. Now, the next question would, that would come up, and let me, I'll come back to this, so I'm gonna kill that off here. Well, how many stocks does it take to really get rid of a lot of, of non-systematic diversifiable risk? How much diversification does your portfolio really have to have in terms of number of stocks? Now here I'll, I'm talking more about, um, you've done your correlation coefficients. We've got this big list of stocks that are not correlated well with each other and all of that. So what is it going to take? Now, this kind of data has been researched over and over endlessly. Master's thesis and back in the day dissertations. But it, if you were to look on the horizontal axis, the number of stocks in your portfolio. Now remember, we're talking about stocks that don't have ridiculously high correlation coefficients. Against total risk, the standard deviation. Now remember, beta is just your systematic risk. But if you're, <coughs> but if you're looking just at total risk with one stock in your portfolio, you eat the entire risk of that stock. All of its diversifiable and non-diversifiable risk. You eat it. When you put another stock with it, low correlation coefficient, you get a noticeable reduction in the total risk. You're getting a little closer to the composite of the two betas. When you put three in, you get even more of a reduction. You get less of a reduction with each one you put in. Law of diminishing marginal returns and all that. But as you put in more and more stocks, you will see that the total risk of the portfolio is declining. And ultimately, what is happening is that you are going to end up getting to the pure beta of the composite portfolio. Pure systematic risk. Now, you're not going to get down to the market, the world, but at about 30 stocks, you will get rid of about 95% of your diversifiable non-systematic risk. 
That's one way you can get down to a professional level where you are not taking risk for which you will cannot you sh should expect a re reward. The problem with this is that 30 stocks is would be a pain in the ass to buy that many and then you have to actively manage them because if one stock price goes up against the others then you have to rebalance the portfolio it's portfolio con control theory uh, but you have to keep rebalancing because the prices are dynamic and if you're holding a certain number of shares of each one and that once one stock goes way up in price it begins to unbalance the portfolio so you have to always be watching the portfolio buying and selling and there are other things that I'll tell you about too that are good investment um, uh, practices but now there are other ways you can do this. Well, what if I don't want to buy a whole pile of different stocks, but I still want portfolio diversification? Well, there are two other ways that you can do it. One is through electronically traded funds, ETFs. And the third way is through mutual funds. Now these are actually kind of the same from an outside perspective. Both of them, there are professional managers who actually do the buying and the balancing all the time of the stocks. All you do is buy, with an ETF, you buy a stock, a share of stock of the ETF. And you have the portfolio diversification of the portfolio that's underneath it that's being managed by professionals. And ETFs, you can get ETFs of any beta you want. If you want high risk, you can get ETFs that have piles of stocks of high beta companies, ETFs that have piles of stocks of low beta companies. And I've shown you this one before, but here's an ETF where the underlying portfolio, which you actually own, is the Standard & Poor's 500. You own the S&P 500, which is about two-thirds of the world portfolio in terms of the market cap of the companies in it. <clears throat> you buy a share of that, you've bought the S&P 500 with all of the diversification of 500 stocks in it. All of the diversification of 500 stocks in it. Now you notice that its beta is one because it's so close to being the world portfolio, which is by definition the beta of one. You are right dead center at all times on the market portfolio. You ride it up and down. And here's another thing, you always keep an eye on the expense ratio. How much are the managers taking for their cut? I'm a little, I avoid anything below about 0.3 to 0.4%. I mean, I see some where the expense ratio is like 3%, 4%. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. They're paying themselves too much. They're buying too many martinis. But I mean, there are all kinds of uh, ETFs out there. I'm trying to think. I may be wrong about this. Hello, kitty. Yeah. TQQQ. 
<laughs> there's an ETF, very well diversified portfolio, has a high expense ratio. Look at the beta on that thing, though. 3.51. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's well diversified, but, you know, I guess you can, ooh, it, uh, but at the same time, that would be a crazy one to do. But it's fully diversified, and there are managers who are quite well paid to do that. So, you know, and there are bond ETFs, there are sector ETFs. You get an ETF that was only medical stocks or stuff like that, or an ETF that had stocks from around the world in it. And then there are also the mutual funds, which are similar to ETFs. There's an underlying professional management that handles the portfolio. The difference it kind of is, it used to be that mutual funds weren't always a great idea because you could trade out and in only four times a year or something like that. Now it's not so much like that. You can buy them and sell them like stocks. The difference with a mutual fund is that you are actually buying into the fund itself. You are becoming an owner. You're not a, a, like an ETF. You're just you buy a share of the stock of the ETF. But with a mutual fund, you actually are part of it. And they will measure your performance in terms of how many share, how, what share of the fund you own. Some of them, when they get a dividend from one of the stocks in the portfolio, they might plow it right back in and increase your share of the fund. Some you can opt in or you can say, no, I want my dividend sent to me. But mutual funds also have that aspect of the portfolio diversification, just like the ETFs. The advantage is you've got pros that are managing the fund. The, uh, and some of them are pretty darn cheap. I mean, if you want, you can buy into TQQ for $24.83 a share. I mean, you're going to ride a rodeo, but at least you know that every variability in that portfolio, your returns, is going to be systematic. It is not going to be risk <coughs> for, <coughs> excuse me, for which you should not expect a return. That's the bottom line of this kind of a lecture is it's, yeah, there, there's a little theory in it, but the reality is that we have got data forever that tells us this is what you want to do if you are not willing to go buy a pile of stocks. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.